Welcome to The Balance, a public health podcast brought to you by the BC Alliance for Healthy Living. I'm Selena Ho, Manager of Communications and Projects. In light of the coronavirus pandemic that we're all experiencing, we want to focus this episode on the effects of the restrictions. Here in BC, we've been given regulations on physical distancing and group gatherings. But at the BC AHL, we wanted to take a deeper dive into how these regulations are impacting our physical activity levels and ultimately our wellness. We had the opportunity to speak with two local researchers who are looking into this exact topic, and we are so excited to share all this new and timely information to you. Now here with us is Dr. Guy Faulkner, a professor from the School of Kinesiology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Guy Faulkner is also the chair in Applied Public Health. So welcome, Guy. Thanks so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. On this episode today of The Balance, we're focusing on the other side of the pandemic regulations. We know that physically distancing, self-isolating, and sometimes quarantine are all beneficial means of keeping the coronavirus spread as minimal as possible within the province. But on today's episode, we want to focus on how those regulations may be impacting our physical health as well. So it's my pleasure to have Guy on the show to further discuss this perspective from a public health lens. Without further ado, let's get started to our questions. Recently published research on how Canadian children and youth's movement and play behaviors were impacted by COVID-19 and the pandemic restrictions. Can you give us a brief overview on the research focus and how the survey was conducted? Yes, and certainly as, as you kind of mentioned there, we were particularly interested in exploring the potential collateral public health damage of the restrictions that were you know, clearly required and still are unfortunately. So we were working with an organization called Participation, and Participation is a, you know, the national voice for physical activity in Canada. And every two years, they, they develop a report card on the physical activity of children and youth. And just around March or April uh, of, of this year, they were you know, planning for the release of that report card but then realized that, that, of course, things have changed dramatically with, with the outbreak of COVID-19 and that you know, we needed to collect data on the movement behaviors of children and youth to, to really help contextualize this report card that was going to be released later in the summer. And so we were, were fortunate, really, to work with Participation, who worked with a marketing company agency to, to recruit and administer online surveys to approximately 1,500 parents of children and youth across Canada. And the survey was really looking at trying to understand the immediate changes in physical activity, in outdoor play, in screen time, and in sleep of children and, and youth as a result of the immediate kind of lockdown in Canada. So the survey went out in, in early to, to mid-April. So we were very fortunate to get in the field quickly, so to speak, to look at those immediate impacts. You kind of answered my next question in your current statement, but just to elaborate a bit further, can you define more specifically some of the movement guidelines for children and youth in your research? Can you describe to us what the recommendations are for optimal physical health for children and youth during this time? Yeah, in, in Canada, we're, we're leading the world, really, in a move to 24-hour movement guidelines. 
So not just for children and youth, but, but now recently for adults. We released new movement guidelines for adults last month. But we started with, with children and youth. From this perspective, we understand that the whole day matters and that movement behaviors interact with one another. That if you're increasing your physical activity, then you must be losing time engaging in something else, whether it's light physical activity or sedentary behavior or even sleep. In Canada, the movement guidelines across the lifespan look at the 24-hour period. For children and youth, it's recommended that children accumulate 60 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous intensity activity and that they take part in muscle and bone strengthening activities at least three times a week that children and youth engage in several hours a day of light physical activity, engage in uninterrupted nine to 11 hours of sleep per night for those uh, children aged five to 13, and eight to 10 hours for those aged 14 to 17 years. And finally, that uh, children and youth are participating in no more than two hours per day of recreational screen time and trying to limit sitting for extended periods of time. So we're really looking, when we're looking at movement behaviors, we are looking at that continuum that starts from sleep to sedentary behavior to light to moderate to vigorous physical activity. So in our studies, such as this one, that's what we're trying to capture is looking at their engagement in those different behaviors. Although we do acknowledge that we do a pretty poor job of assessing light physical activity. That's a lot, I think, more difficult for many of us to, to think about how much light activity we've engaged in the day. But we have a fairly good job of assessing self-reported sleep, physical activity, and, and sedentary behavior. I think it's so incredible that Canada's a leader in accumulating and integrating all these different aspects of physical health that includes sedentary behavior and sleeping as well. Those things don't typically come to mind when you think about physical health. Now, Guy, can you give us some examples, everyday examples of what moderate to intense activity might look like? Well, I think intensity is, is sometimes a difficult concept to convey. You know, when I think of moderate intensity activity, it's activity that makes you slightly out of breath, um, but you can still carry on a conversation. It's that kind of activity where you're walking as if you're late for a meeting. So it's kind of a brisk walk is, is much more associated with moderate intensity. So that's where I think you can tell that moderate to vigorous is when you're slightly out of breath, when you feel warmer, when you feel an increased heart rate, and you can still carry on a conversation. When we talk about vigorous, that's you know, typically sweating might be a kind of an indication uh, of that. And so that's why you know, self-report of intensity is not perfect because I think many of us, not just kids and youth, but adults as well, have a hard time, I think, probably gauging what is moderate versus what is perhaps light. Thanks for painting that picture. Maybe now listeners can have a better idea of what it means to be vigorous based on their out of breathness. I'm just moving on to the, the next question. Based on the research, what were some of the major outcomes for families in particular? Did physical activity get better or worse compared to before the pandemic? And if it got worse or better, by how much? Probably won't be a surprise that, you know, on average, things went in the, the wrong directions or, or in, the, in the directions that you might, might anticipate that children and youth reported lower physical activity levels, reported less outdoor time, they reported higher sedentary behavior, higher screen time, and more sleep during the outbreak compared to, to before March 11th and, and the declaration of the outbreak. 
And that's where, you know, it's good to think of that 24 hour movement behaviors, because that's where you're seeing this trade off between these different behaviors that if you're reporting less physical activity, then you've got to see something shift. And so we're seeing increases in screen time and sedentary behavior. The also increases in sleep for, for the majority of the, the sample. When we look at, you know, how many kids were meeting 24 hour movement guidelines. So meeting that whole package of, of recommendations, you know, only 4.8% of children were meeting the guidelines and, and less than 1% of youth, teenagers, were meeting the guidelines. So, so on average, somewhere around 3% of the sample were meeting recommended guidelines. And we know from prior research using similar questions pre-COVID, something more between the range of 12 to 15% of kids were meeting guidelines. So we've seen a kind of a significant reduction uh, from around 15% to around 2.5% meeting the guidelines. So, so really quite a radical kind of shift. And, and in the context as well of, of already existing concerns about how active children and youth today are in Canada. So certainly some evidence that, that it's gotten worse with COVID. That is quite a radical statistic to be aware of. It's quite a it's quite a negative shift, as you mentioned. The, the statistics that I was giving you was really looking at the average mm. with the whole sample. And that paints a kind of doesn't tell the whole story because there are actually some indications of disparities in, in those changes. So it wasn't as if every Canadian child uh, or youth had that same trend. While there was certainly kind of decre declines in physical activity uh, across the board, there were some factors that seemed to be protective. So, so living in a detached house, for example, kids who lived in a detached house, there was less decline in activity in an outdoor time. And that makes sense that probably there's access to a back garden. Having a younger parent was associated with, with less significant declines in outdoor play and physical activity. Now that may mirror age-related trends in adults' physical activity, that as we get older, we tend to be less active, but younger parents and kids with younger parents seem to be more resilient and owning a dog. Mm -hmm. if, you had a, if you had a dog in the household, then, then kids were, again, a little bit more resilient in terms of how much time they declined in their, their outdoor play and, and their physical activity. And there was also another study that, we, that was led by a professor called Raktim Mitra from Ryerson, who used a similar data but was linking the, the, the parent self-report data to data about the built environment, about where the households were located. And again, even within that, that particular study, there seemed to be these two clusters of households. One cluster was, yes, we saw everything in the average direction that I mentioned, that there was a significant decline in activity, outdoor play, increase in recreational screen time, increase in sleep. But there was another cluster that reported, while the declines in physical activity, there were much, there were much less and the declines in outdoor play were much less as well. And again, those tended to be associated with factors such as you know, living in, in a house versus living in an apartment. You know, if you lived near a major road, then that was a barrier uh, and associated with, with greater declines. That having access to parks increased the odds of outdoor activities as well. And there was also a socioeconomic gradient as well, that kids in lower socioeconomic status households and neighborhoods reported you know, greater declines in their activity in outdoor play. So again, it's suggesting that it's 
not uniform the impact of, of you know, the restrictions on children and youth across Canada. And I think that's important to keep in mind because there clearly there's some issues around equity during that that we can try to reduce the, the negative impacts on certain households where it may be for a range of reasons more difficult to access safe outdoor spaces for physical activity or to have the support because one's parents are working, for example, to engage in, in physical activity. Because that also seemed to be a very important protective factor was parent co-participation. And so when parents were reporting that they were able to be physically active with their kids, then again, we saw less of a decline in outdoor play and physical activity when that family co-participation could still take place. And that's a significant factor outside of the context of COVID is, is being active as a family is an important kind of um, consideration. And thank you for bringing up those disparities between households and how certain families fare better than others. Reversing back on some of those trends that you noticed in light of COVID, are those trends of owning a dog, having a detached house, having an active parent, were those already positive impacts towards child and youth physical activity prior to COVID? And did COVID just highlight those impacts even further? Yes, yes, definitely. That, that these were consistent correlates of, of child and youth physical activity is family support is a strong one. Certainly growing research about dog ownership is one that's something that, that you know, I haven't told my kids about yet. And, and you know, the built environment, that's, that's complicated. Uh, some of the, the research looking at built environment characteristics and physical activity in COVID is, is that some of the barriers related to the built environment may change in a context where physical, where there are lots of restrictions taking place. If there is the necessity of having to, to walk to places because you know, car travel isn't feasible, then, then some of the factors that we commonly see in the literature may be different. But certainly one thing that persisted was this being close proximity to, to a high traffic road, that, that still safety concerns still are a factor probably for parents in, in allowing their kids outdoors by themselves. And so I think this is when it becomes, particularly during those early phases where parents were, were working at home, for example, they may not have the time to, to go out and engage in physical activity with, with their kids. Safety is still a concern. Then is what happens that kids then are engaging in screen time or, or a replacement because parents don't feel comfortable letting, letting their kids outside. Precisely. And it'll be so interesting to see how the data maps out post-COVID with all the changes in household working, the adoption right. of more pets, and potentially less driving as well. So based on your knowledge and previous research, what were your impressions of the research results? Were you surprised? Or like you mentioned, some of the outcomes were what you expected. Were there aspects of it that did surprise you? Or overall, it was to be expected from your knowledge? from my perspective. Often you do research because you're interested in a question that you don't know the answer to. You know, now on reflection, and we've done some, I've led some qualitative research where we interviewed some, those two clusters. So I talked about these two clusters where there seemed to be the significant reductions in outdoor play and activity, increased screen time. And then this other cluster, which wasn't as dramatic and some sense of maybe some greater outdoor play in, in cases in some households. So we've just wrapping up analysis of a qualitative study where we interviewed parents from those two different clusters. 
What I found interesting when I've been reading the transcript is when I read one and some of them, I look at it and think, well, this is me. This is my family. I think we've all had lived experience, of course, of, of lockdown in, in the context of COVID. And I've got two kids who fit the kind of the age range of sample we looked at. The experiences are very consistent. I mean, I think both my kids increase, certainly increase their screen time, and it's been difficult to roll that back. They've certainly engaged in less physical activity overall. And I think what really brought it home to me, which is maybe not so surprising, but, but something that we need to think about is once kids no longer have access to this very structured and supervised opportunities for physical activity, such as hockey, like my daughter plays hockey. And so she would have five to six hockey practices throughout the week. The kids would you know, think they've got physical education. My son has badminton. A lot of this stuff that uh, is programmed and that when that was taken away, Almost a lot of people I didn't think knew what to do. Like, how do we fill out that time? And, and how can we encourage kids to engage in physical activity independently? That's what we need to think about is almost retool as families to, to look at, well, how can we you know, remain active as families and, and not rely on teachers, coaches, and supervision and, and structure? Because you know, that clearly wasn't a possible available at that first lockdown. And, and it, it may be coming again. And, and I, you know, another piece of the research I'm interested in you know, pre-COVID was this concept of independent mobility and the freedom of kids to travel around their neighborhood without adult escort. Again, you know, if kids don't have that independent mobility, if they can't leave the house without their parents, then they're not going to get outdoor playtime or physical activity. So again, we need to think about how do we encourage uh, and support parents to feel comfortable allowing that independent mobility, because it may be the only opportunity that kids get to be outdoors and, and to play and to engage in physical activity. So I think that's one, one lesson that I've really kind of been brought home to me. But again, it's also just reflecting of my own family circumstances as well and, and trying to to, to plan ahead for stricter physical mandates coming in, in the short term. Thank you, Guy. That's a really great personal reflection by bringing in your own family and how your kids are dealing with the pandemic regulations right now. And what you're saying about independent mobility, it's definitely something that we have to consider during and possibly after COVID, depending on how programming might look like by then too. The regulations are for sure getting me to consider different ways to be more independently mobile and active both indoors and in my own neighborhood. Now, moving from a more personal to a broader topic, do you have examples of other places where they handled the pandemic differently than BC and how those responses led to different physical activity outcomes? You know, some of the data demonstrated that the greatest declines in physical activity and outdoor play in particular was, were in Ontario. You know, Ontario at that time, and I think now, you know, have the highest incidence uh, of COVID-19. And, and the perception certainly from, from my understanding was, was also the tightest physical restrictions during that initial lockdown. And so clearly I think there is an association between the, the measures that are put in place, the perceptions of those measures and I think you know, it's interesting that you know, what we need to do is really preserve, because to avoid as much as possible the collateral damage, public health damage of, of these restrictions, is really preserve the 
opportunities to access to outdoor space for, for families and, and for, for all of us, that there are potential where the, the edict of, you know, stay home is misperceived as stay inside. And I think we need to be careful that we're not not saying to, you know, don't leave the house, but that, you know, still getting outdoors, physically distancing is still probably the safest place to be. And, and engaging in physical activity and exercise is wonderful for your health. And it's something that, that you should be doing. But yeah, do it close to home. Don't kind of take the message too strictly about it's kind of literally stay indoors. Because I think that's the approach that again, and the, the perception I have of in BC was, you know, when listening to Bonnie Henry, the, the messaging was, I think, very much about get outdoors and be physically active. And maybe that message didn't come through as strongly on, in Ontario. I don't know that for sure. But I think, you know, potentially it, it just really highlights the, the messaging. Getting active outdoors is probably still one of the best things that you can do for your health. And you can do it in a way that carries very low risk of infection. The yeah. other factor that, that I think that we're blessed with in BC is that the qualitative work that we did with parents in Toronto and Vancouver, again, trying to tease apart these different clusters, what we found was that the, the experiences of the parents were very similar. The only real distinguishing feature that, that distinguished the two groups was the weather. And that, you know, in BC, we're, we're blessed with weather conditions where I think we can be physically active all year round with very little constraints, as opposed to where you might have in, in winter conditions in Ontario, in, in the East Coast. And that really does, you know, perhaps restrict you, make it more difficult for families to remain active. Uh, and we don't have that barrier in in. In BC. So if there's any silver lining to all of this, it's the fact that we live in a province which where the weather is, is pretty conducive to, to outdoor activity, as long as you're wearing the right clothing all year round. It's so funny you say that because everyone complains about Vancouver weather, but here we are conducive to physical activity. I think the weather is incredible here. There's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing choices. And that, those are definitely small details to look into. The weather, time spent outdoors, and just the clothing that will make such an impact on physical and mental well-being as the lockdown restrictions continued. What are some policy changes that you would recommend to ensure we're staying as safe as possible while maintaining or increasing our physical activity levels, especially, like you mentioned, the cold season upon us now? You know, the shifts that we were starting to see, certainly in, in cities like Vancouver, um, which were looking at reallocating roadway space, for example, that were looking at enhancing opportunities for using bike paths, pedestrian paths, and so on, just so that we can preserve, as I said before, preserve opportunities to access outdoor space. Now that, you know, sometimes will take policy changes in order to, to make those happen. For example, we, we had the Room to Move initiative in Vancouver, which was doing exactly that and looking at street calming measures to slow down traffic in particular. So again, if we're thinking about kids and youth, some of the, the traffic calming measures I've seen around where I live are trying to make it safer for kids to use roads and use, use the footpaths so that they can get outdoors. So I think any policy 
should be kind of really thinking about how that, that can happen. How can we look at ensuring access to, to outdoor space to be physically active? That's, to me, I think the biggest focus because it is about trying to ensure that there is physical distancing happening at the same time. I think there are other things that you know we could go into. I think we need to be more creative about physical education, for example, and how we deliver that in an online forum, which is difficult to do. But you know, we, we need to move beyond physical education being a high-intensity interval exercise class, which, which it turned out, you know, certainly from my kids' experiences, that's what it was, because it was the most easiest thing for the teachers to do was to lead people through a circuit via Zoom. But, but that's not physical activity. That's not enjoyable. Um, we need to think of ways in which we can still perhaps deliver quality physical education online. And I know that's a challenge, and it's certainly not my, my area of expertise, but, but I imagine that there is some, some creative work going into that at the moment. For me, it's, it's very much about the, the built environment uh, and ensuring people can get outdoors and safely be active near where they live. It's so interesting how COVID highlights physical activity improvements that we needed prior to COVID, as well as the more creative things such as, like you said, the digital learning that will be encompassed in the future too. Now on a more personal level, and something that you did also touch on multiple times in our conversation, is what recommendations would you give to our listeners to ensure we're staying physically active along with children and youth? We're trying to also you know, normalize that times are challenging for all of us for a number of reasons. And it's also challenging about trying to keep that healthy balance of 24 hours of engaging in that 60 minutes of physical activity, reducing, you know, restricting screen time to no more than two hours and, and so on and, and so forth. We need to, to appreciate and acknowledge that we're not going to be successful every day. But I think, you know, we can try to be creative as parents in, in looking at how we might support and encouraging, encourage our kids to be active. One of those ways is through co-participation. So looking at ways to be physically active as a family. I think there may be opportunities to try new leisure hobbies as a break from screen time as a family, whether that's doing jigsaw puzzles or, or different types of, of games and activities. There are so many online apps that you can try for physical activity and exercise that you can incorporate into every day. So you're not kind of saying, well, we're not gonna watch screens at all, but, but again, there may be opportunities for using those wisely. And I think it's more getting outdoors as much as possible. That's the number one recommendation for me that, that as a parent and as, a, as a, a child, how can you get outdoors as much as possible? Because when you're outdoors, you're, you're more active. And so I think that's, that's the start. And it goes back to that communication part as well, is that in the case of physical restrictions and lockdowns, that currently at least it's not, you know, that stay at home message shouldn't be confused with stay indoors, getting outdoors as much as possible. You know, what we've learned from the qualitative work, again, and, and from, to a certain extent, my own experience, is just the importance of, of having routines uh, and having a structure to the day, taking part in physical activity together, or you're, you're still setting regular and consistent bedtimes, wake up times, 
you're monitoring screen time usage. Maybe you're being a little bit flexible on that the recommended guideline, but you're trying to have a, have a structure. And I think that I'm trying to kind of do a little bit more as well is, is integrate the, you know, this kind of notion of, you know, when we're all, most of us are working at home, our work has become home. And, and so trying to have a structure where I'm going for a 30 minute walk before, before the start of the day to, to, to represent my commute to work. And at the end of the day, I might do another half hour walk as a mental break from, from my work day, rather than trying to squeeze, well, I don't have to commute to work, so I can do an extra 30 minutes of work. Again, how do we plan a structure uh, for the week that helps us do the best that we can to meet these recommended health guidelines for not only our kids, but, but also ourselves as parents? Guy, thank you so much for that response. I really appreciate how you bring in that vital, compassionate lens. We're all struggling as this is a very different and strange time for everybody. And that can definitely lead us to become more sedentary um, at odd times where we typically might not be. And getting this compassionate angle from a professional who specializes in physical activity gives us that breather to just take care of ourselves and relax. At the same time, I also really appreciate just how accessible and doable your tips are, such as replacing your daily commute with a neighborhood walk. For myself, this is definitely a motivational tip to get me moving in the morning and the afternoons. Now, Guy, just as we're finishing up, is there anything else you would like to add or emphasize to the audience? I think when we started this work in end of March and April, we wanted to look at the immediate impact of COVID-19 outbreak. And we thought at that time, you know, rather optimistically that, well, in six months time, it will be interesting to do this work again, to see if there, if there has been a recovery, to see if, you know, we assume that we'll find that families have, have struggled. There's been a decline in activity in outdoor play, for example, but, you know, things in six months time will be getting, will be getting better, but we need to assess anyway. But fast forward six months later, and we're almost going back to the situation that was worse than it was back in the middle of March. And, and so that is quite sobering that we're not necessarily preparing for recovery. We're actually preparing for second wave. And, and so we are actually in the field. We just finished repeating this survey and we'll shortly in, a, in probably in about a month's time have some data that, that will at least be able to shed light on what things are looking like now. Um, we don't think they'll be completely back to what they were like pre-COVID, but it becomes, um, you know, again, another yardstick, I think, to look at the ongoing kind of nature of, of this COVID-19 pandemic, that it's, it's not going away anytime soon. And that unfortunately, we, we just need to brace ourselves for the long haul and really look at how we can be resilient as families in the face of continuing lockdown procedures, stay healthy and stay active. Because again, I think probably it's, it's the one number one thing that we can do ourselves for ourselves, to protect our own health and, and the health of our children and youth is by getting outdoors as much as possible and being physically active whilst physically distancing. So, so again, it just really strikes home the important message of getting outdoors as much as, as you can when you can. Wow, that's so exciting to hear about further research being done to better understand how we as a province deal with physical activity during this pandemic. Yeah, and we also, as part of that, the new survey, we didn't the first time because we were trying to be as brief as possible. We decided to add it in. We're questions looking at the parents 
uh, adherence to the adult 24-hour guidelines as well. So we can, we can also look at the impact on parents as well. We just looked at children and youth the first time around, but now we can probably look at you know, the relationship between parents and kids in their activity. Wow, I can imagine it's going to be so fascinating correlating the data compared to the beginning of the pandemic up till now. I'm looking forward to seeing the data myself and further understanding what we can do as a province to improve. And if we have improved in certain areas, what would have caused that? What factors? Thank you so much, Guy, for being part of this interview and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us on The Balance. I'm excited to present our next guest, Ioma Yvonne Adache. Ioma is a PhD student at the School of Public and Population Health at the University of British Columbia. The study Ioma conducted, and that we will be discussing today, was done under the supervision of Dr. Louise C. Mass, professor at UBC and BC Children's Research Institutes, in collaboration with Mark Pitlabo and Dr. Sarah Hutchinson. The study she is reporting is funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So welcome, Ioma, and thank you so much for joining us today at the Balance Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, Selena. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to explore more of the research results that you garnered from your time at UBC, researching the impacts of COVID, how it impacts emotional well-being within families. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into the questions. And of course, the first one's going to start off with just a brief summary of the research findings. So recently, you published research exploring the impact of financial insecurity on adolescent health behaviors, specifically focusing on how COVID-19 has influenced screen time, physical activity, and diet quality. Can you give us a brief summary of the research findings, Ioma? Sure. Um, So I'd just like to start off by giving a more nuanced um, description of our research objective. So we wanted to look at, uh, as you correctly stated, the impact of financial security on um, adolescent health behaviors in teenagers here in Vancouver, the greater Vancouver area. But specifically, we wanted to look at the mediating role of both parent and teen emotional well-being in this relationship. We wanted to fully understand how emotional well-being might potentially be affecting financial security and teen health behaviors. Just to summarize our, our results briefly, we did find that there's a relationship between income and teen health behaviors. And this relationship is being influenced by both parents, specifically mothers' emotional well-being, and teen emotional well-being. In our initial analysis, we looked at financial insecurity, but we also looked at income just to see whether or not those two differed in the relationship between, in the relationship with uh, teen uh, health behaviors. And what we did see was like, surprisingly, there was a relationship between income, but financial insecurity was not significantly related to mothers' emotional well-being. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Actually, kind of just backtracking a bit, can you give us a description of the difference between financial security and income and then why those factors have been that difference with the mm-hmm. mother being? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the initially we hypothesized that there would be there would be this relationship between financial insecurity and um, emotional well-being just because financial insecurity, it's not only about a number as 
income is. Income is very objective. It's a, it's a number. And then it's what we kind of, we as society place value on that number, correct? And we interpret that differently. And But it's a, a number at the end of the day. But financial insecurity and the way we measure that, it tends to also encompass this emotional aspect, this evaluation of yourself and your ability to meet your needs. Um, and that, you know, is highly related to our emotional well-being as well. And so we did, you know, predict that we would see this relationship that we didn't end up seeing. Wow, Ioma, it's so fascinating how your research brought together the factors of the mother's well-being and how that influences the teenager's well-being. I'm really excited for us to dive in further with the rest of your research findings. And just going off of that note, how do you measure parental and teenage emotional well-being in the midst of COVID? And how are factors such as optimism or depression measured for these groups? We, in a way, we kind of got lucky where um, we were already in the process of conducting data collection for another large study that uh, my lab is doing. I work with Dr. Louise Mass. Um, at the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. So we were already conducting um, research on adolescents and looking at adolescent health behaviors when everything happened with the pandemic and COVID-19 was declared a pandemic and you know the shutdown and all that. And so it was during that time we then decided to keep collecting data and then to just analyze the data and looking at the impact of COVID on adolescent health behaviors and emotional well-being and all that. But all that to say is that we collected this data using an online platform. Both parents and teens were asked to complete a series of questionnaires online. Um, and these questionnaires were used to assess their self-esteem, optimism. In the case of parents, we assessed depression, depressive symptoms. And then in the case of the adolescents, we assessed worry instead. So it was pretty much just a series of different questions that we asked them. And um, they were asked to rate their responses on a Likert scale, whether or not they agreed or disagreed with certain statements. Considering the, the scale that was used and also all the factors that were involved, your team was really lucky to have been able to track it from the very beginning until now, mm -hmm. because not all the research concerning COVID right now has that breadth of facts right now. Yeah. yeah. So just considering the different factors that were measured, why was the mother's emotional well-being specifically the mediator in the data versus another parental figure. Mm -hmm. What disparities were there between the mother's demographic profile that ultimately impacted health behaviors? So to begin with the first part of your question, um, you're referencing our result where we found that there was this indirect effect of both mother's emotional well-being and teen emotional well-being mm -hmm. um, in the relationship between income and physical activity and screen time alone, not healthy eating. Just to point out, it wasn't just the uh, mother's emotional well-being. There was also the teen emotional well-being that we were seeing that the effect was going through both. We did notice something really interesting and unexpected that income, if we excluded mother's emotional well-being from our mediation analysis, there was a stronger indirect relationship um, if the effect is going through just the teen emotional well-being. Initially, our hypothesis, we, we wanted to look at both mother and teen emotional well-being, but we noticed that um, although there was this indirect when we looked at both, it was stronger when we looked at just 
the teen emotional well-being as the mediator. And the reason we only looked at mothers' emotional well-being is although we collected data from mothers and fathers, majority of our data, I want to say about 85%, was actually collected from mothers or female caregivers. Mm. And so we had very limited uh, number of male participants. So we decided to just restrict our analysis to focus in on the relationships uh, with mothers. That's interesting. I'm really intrigued to learn or better understand why it is that the teen emotional well-being was a stronger, had that stronger effect. Are there any mm-hmm. ideas about why that was the case? So it's very interesting that teens are aware of this um, of the, their total family income in a sense, because there's this relationship between income and teen um, emotional well-being. But I think it might, it might partially have to do with the age group that we were looking at, where, um, you know, as kids kind of grow up and they move into adolescence, they kind of become more in charge of their own behaviors in a sense. Like, although that their parents and their families still play a role in their lives and, um, influence them, they have a little bit more autonomy at this point, right? Um, And so I think maybe that's why we're seeing um, it's not necessarily going through the mother alone that's affecting the teen, but the teen, it's going to the teen directly because they're becoming more aware of their family um, circumstances. Yeah, so I think maybe that's something to do with it, but that's a very interesting question and I don't know um, for sure yet. We still have some digging to do, but uh, yeah, it was very surprising to see that. Oh, that's so interesting. And um, that's a really great integrated understanding of what the facts read like so far. It would be interesting Mm -hmm. to kind of compare if if we had data for Um, youth or children's emotional well-being and what it would look like comparing it to the teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like younger, younger children. Yeah, definitely. For sure. And just going back to the current results that we are seeing with the research, mm-hmm. based on your own knowledge and the research experiment, why do you think the mother's well-being indirectly impacts teenage screen time and physical activity, but not healthy eating? Yeah, it's a really good, that's a good question. And I'm not 100% sure why. Um, I can only speculate it might be just the nature of the way that we assessed healthy eating. We utilize the healthy eating index, which pretty much it's a score that we compute to score uh, from zero to 100. And so it's a very kind of objective way at looking at it. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly why we're seeing the, the results aren't consistent with the healthy eating, in, healthy eating um, but I think maybe it might have something to do with that. If we were to use different measures to assess health, healthy eating, I, I speculate that our results might be slightly different. But specifically for screen time and physical activity, they're closely related as well, right? They're often mutually exclusive. And so I think if we're seeing a relationship in physical activity, it's likely that we would also be seeing something in screen time as well, which is what we we saw. Um, but yeah, the healthy eating, it's it's very interesting why we we're not seeing that. It just means that emotional well-being isn't, doesn't influence the relationship between income and healthy eating. That's, that's it. So if the healthy eating was based off that scale of 100, mm-hmm. how did you measure screen time and physical activity? Was that just through self-reporting or mm-hmm. like a criteria that they were measured off of? No. So unlike, well, I guess the healthy eating was based on self-report in that participants had to complete three 24-hour dietary recalls. And then based on the the information they provided, we were able to calculate their HEI scores, the healthy eating 
18 index scores. But then for screen time and physical activity, you're correct that those were self-reported. And so it was part of the, the a series of um, questions that the, the parents, adolescents had to complete. Based on your own experience and your own knowledge, mm-hmm. were you surprised by the findings? You mentioned that there are some knowledge gaps with some of the results, but beyond that, were there any other aspects that surprised you and why, why would they stand out for you? Yeah, I think the fact that financial score was not related to, directly related to the mother's emotional well-being significantly, that was surprising to me. I thought that um, there would be a significant relationship between the two. And then in in addition to that, also the fact that teen emotional well-being was a a mediator, stronger mediator than the combination of mother and teen in the relationship between income and um, screen time and physical activity. Those two, I think, would be the most surprising results because the first was pretty much opposite to what we <laughs> hypothesized initially. And then the second was just a surprising finding, I guess. Yeah. As I'm looking at the data and the research findings, I'm still wrapping my head around this. It's so interesting seeing how all these factors of well-being between the teenagers and the mothers play around with each other. Um, So Ayoma, what do we already know about associations between financial insecurity and adult and adolescent mental health? What knowledge gaps did this study help fill? Um, That said, Ayoma, you did kind of touch upon this topic a bit before. Yeah, I'm happy to expand on it a little bit more. Presently, with the COVID situation, um, families are under a lot of stress and recent studies that have been published in regards to how Canadian families are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic are reporting that parents and, and their children are having to deal with a lot of different stressors at this time. The unprecedented shift or abrupt shift to you know, virtual learning and having to work from home and juggle childcare with working from home and still having the time to help your child adjust to this new learning uh, platform a lot that parents are dealing with and then with that is the whole financial insecurity aspect of it that comes into play where families are reporting I think one one study reported that um, among the Canadian population 30 percent are reporting an inability to meet financial needs the financial stress is related to emotional well-being like I said before um, financial security it not, it's not only about a specific number anymore. It's, it looks uh, at, you know, whether or not you have like, able to meet your needs. And that definitely relates to your, your emotional well-being and, you know, whether or not you feel like you, you are able to provide for your family or that's a stressor if you feel like you can't. And that will definitely impact your emotional well-being. Thanks, Ioma. You did a really great job integrating the previous knowledge in light of the pandemic and how the data collection and the impacts of those factors of financial insecurity and well-being are coming out right now. So Ayoma, did this curtain research help fill out any of the knowledge gaps that we previously had before? Yes, yes. So recent research has, um, in Canadian families, I think the study was conducted with families with younger children. So around the age of six, I think was the the mean age. Um, And they looked at similarly the, the impact of COVID on financial security in families and health behaviors and all that. 
and they they reported quite similar things that, that we did but I think we take it a little bit further in that we're looking at you know actual relationships between the different variables we're not simply reporting on percentages of people reporting decrease in their physical activity increase in screen time changes in health uh, eating habits we're actually looking at whether or not these different variables are correlated and if they are where is the effect coming from and specifically we're looking at emotional well-being as contributing to the effects that we're seeing and it's so important that your research puts together the correlation between those relationships especially during this pandemic the results of these kind of research are going to be very significant moving forward with how we as a province will implement things like mental health programs, family programs. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think the emotional toll that the pandemic is having on all of us is sometimes um, underestimated or understated. And I think it's by you know doing such research and getting a better understanding of what Canadian families are going through that we're able to actually support them in the policies and measures that are put in place. Exactly. And just based off of your last point, um, and based on the significance that we see between financial security, emotional well-being, and health behaviors, are there any financial policies that you would recommend to support families and individuals that could help strengthen the foundation for healthy behaviors? I think that's one thing about this study is that the fact that we have been able to identify emotional well-being as being on that pathway between income and teen health behaviors, it, it influences prioritization of public health policies, I think, in the sense that by addressing one of these factors, for example, income, and creating policies that help to support um, the financial security of Canadian families, we are also maybe indirectly influencing their emotional well-being as well as their, you know, their health behavior. So just one measure has the, the potential to impact so many different aspects of, of, the, of, of, of our lives. Precisely. And especially right now, we're really seeing the pressure. We're really living it. Now, just slipping back to focus back on the parents and the teenagers, um, Ioma, with the mothers and the adolescents spending more time together, what actions can the parents take to influence and model health behaviors? But even considering that, are there factors that influence the adult's ability to take those actions? Yeah, um, so I, I actually will start off by answering your second question. Along with the uh, survey questions that we asked parents to complete for the purposes of this, uh, this study, we also decided to conduct qualitative research. So we did interviews with separate interviews with both parents and teens as we wanted to get a more in-depth understanding of, you know, the impact of COVID on their health behaviors and the influences around them that are, influ that are impacting their, their health behaviors. And so it was really interesting getting different perspectives from both the parents and the teens. In, in terms of, uh, of the interviews I conducted, parents really are worried about their teens' health behaviors. They are trying to, as much as they can, to get their teens out and about. However, I think what was very interesting was there's this variation in how teens are being impacted by the pandemic in terms of their health behaviors. Some of them are doing well, according to their parents, and then others are having much a much harder time. And so 
I think as a parent, it's important to model health behaviors to your children. Maybe don't, you know, be on the screens at the dinner table after spending all day at, on the screens. Um, push your children to go out for a walk or, you know, rather than just telling them to go for a walk, maybe go with them or you go for your walk first and then they, they see that you're doing it and maybe that would be more motivating. I think that aspect, the modeling aspect is very important. But then at the same time, I think we also have to remember that although we're all worried about our health, our mental health and our physical health and, and um, we're scared that our kids are spending too much time in front of the screen, it's the one way that they can really connect with the people that are closest to them right now, right? So as a parent, even though you might be worried that your teen is spending so much time in front of the screen, I think it's important to take a step back and you know, think about the fact that they're not able to, to associate or to, to socialize the way they were before. And so this is the only means that they have and socialization is so important for their mental health, even if that means them spending like an additional hour um, in front of the screen, just engaging with their friends. I think that's also valuable and important. We just have to, I guess, be kind to ourselves and just try to survive what's, what's going on. I think you make such a great point about how being online is the ultimate way of forming social connections right now, especially for teenagers with social media being a major way of connecting with peers. So of course, there's a huge emotional value and stake in technology right now more than ever because it's so important for our emotional well-being. Especially right now because it's lacking so much, right? There's literally no other way for them to be around their friends. And so if this is the only way, you know, recognize that mental health component is really important and we often neglect it, unfortunately. Yes, for sure. And you know what? I'm totally guilty of spending more screen time um, right now just to socialize as well. I, I think we all are. It's really the main social climate for most of us right now. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I, I'm a proponent for, you know, spending time away from the screen, being outside, getting active. And if there are ways for the, for the teens and the children to do that safely while maintaining social distancing, yes, for sure, you know, step away from the screen. But if this is the only option for you to, you know, socialize with your peers, then I think it's okay if you're spending an additional hour in front of the screen. For sure. Thanks, Ioma. Your responses have been so integrative and you've done a really great job answering some of my more complex questions. And right now, I have another policy-related question for you. What are some policy changes you would recommend to ensure we're staying as safe as possible while maintaining or increasing our physical activity levels and nutritional diets while decreasing screen time, but of course, allowing for that leniency with the screen time considering those social connections that you just mentioned. So a recent study was, I think I already talked about this study earlier, but they also did qualitative research and they asked parents about what they need to support them right now in the midst of COVID and to support their mental health and their physical health. And it was actually interesting, some of the parents' responses. And I thought it was really valuable information in terms of knowing how best to help Canadian families. And some of the things, they're not exactly at the policy level, but I think they're still important to highlight. Um, and some of the things parents uh, noted was taking time out of your day to do like a new activity with your family and to go outside was something that they said would 
help them. Some of the other things they asked for was um, mindfulness activities or other stress reduction methods that are appropriate for all ages. So, so yeah, so parents have, um, have noticed, have uh, requested some support with that, how to deal with emotion regulation and supporting uh, children with mental health issues right now. Some, some parenting practices related to like uh, managing tantrums with kids and fights between siblings because they're all always together nowadays and, and all that. So these are definitely not at the, at the policy level, but I think they're still important things, real world things that Canadian families are dealing with and that they would like support with. So it's not always, you know, at the highest level. Um, something like income and financial security and, you know, something like the CERB that addresses those things are very important. But I think, you know, when we come down to the, the actual people who are, these things also need to be taken into account as well. You know what, Ioma, that's a really great point you make there because the means to curb some of the more negative impacts are more on the foundational level. Of course, like you mentioned, there are higher level policies that we can take in and building in that financial security that will eventually trickle down. Exactly. That's the hope with this with this research, seeing that there is that relationship between emotional well-being and, and the health behaviors, because something like a policy at the higher level that influences their income and financial security has the potential to trickle down all the way to influence emotional well-being and individual health behaviors that people are engaging in. Yes, even just referencing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, things like financial security, housing, food, those are all things on like the most bottom rung that everybody needs before achieving that state of emotional well-being. And given the effects of the pandemic, most of us here in Canada are experiencing some form of those financial impacts. And now, Ayoma, on a more personal level, what recommendations can give us listeners to ensure we're staying physically active along with teenagers while maintaining, like you said, that social connection and emotional well-being? Yeah, I think I want to say get out as much as you possibly can. Right now, the, the weather in Vancouver does not exactly encourage that. <laughs> if there's an opportunity for you to get out with you know, your friends or your family, take it and get out you don't have to physical activity doesn't have to be something that's extremely strenuous simply going for a walk is physical activity i think that's also another thing where um, people feel like they have to you know reach that point where they're really out of breath and you know it's it's a hard work yeah those are nice sometimes but it's also okay to take it easy you just have to move that's all um and so i think taking the time to move and to also do it with people who are most important in your life, even if it's being outside and, you know, doing walking, doing a social distance walk, that's fine. And then at the same time, knowing that your emotional health and your mental health is also very, it's, a, it's as important as your physical health. And, you know, if there are certain days where you're not feeling as motivated to do a certain workout, being kind to yourself and knowing that, you know, this is an unprecedented situation that is currently underway almost talk to yourself and encourage yourself like you would encourage a friend <laughs> um, or someone important to you in your life. But just knowing that your emotional well-being is important as well as your physical um, health. And if you do need to take time sometimes to just, you know, maybe cry, just time off for yourself. That's okay. I'm just trying to say it's okay not to 
you know, we, we have these like physical activity goals for ourselves and these like health goals that we always want to meet. But right now it's really difficult to meet those goals. Um, and so be kind to yourself when there are days where you're not meeting your goals. It's, it's fine. Ayoma, I really appreciate how authentic your response was. And I love your advice on treating yourself like your own best friend because we're all spending so much more time in solitude or in our household bubble. And giving ourselves that kindness is great for our emotional well-being, which will ultimately contribute to our physical activity levels in the long run too. Yes, exactly. I think it's really great for us listeners to hear your advice echo Guy Faulkner's on going outside when possible, but also having that extra compassion for yourself during this time. Ioma, is there anything else you would like to add or emphasize to the audience? The one take home from this, the results that we, that I just reported is the importance of our emotional well-being and our mental health. And I just, I think we should remember not to neglect our mental health. So thank you so much, Ioma, for being a guest on our podcast, The Balance. It was so great being able to talk to you and learn more about your relevant and important research and also learn about some of the unexpected outcomes you also got from this um, research as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. And I do hope that the audience does find something to take away from, from our podcast. been listening to The Balance, a public health podcast brought to you by the BC Alliance for Healthy Living. The BC AHL was established in 2003, and we represent the largest health promotion team in BC history. Our vision is healthy living for all British Columbians through every stage of life. Our mission is to promote healthy living to prevent chronic diseases by mobilizing key organizations that influence health to collaborate on health policy and programs throughout British Columbia. You can find links to the research articles mentioned in this podcast episode on the show notes. You can subscribe to our newsletter to learn more about healthy living initiatives and what we're up to by clicking on the subscribe button on our website at bchealthyliving.ca or emailing move at bchealthyliving.ca. You can also follow us on social media or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.